0: It's a great undertaking to chronicle the history of an institution so unique, so rich with significant events, so influential in the landscape of our nation. But for the last 25 years, Betty has done that with the utmost professionalism, devotion and a bit of a flair. Every week, she she gives us a little history lesson at our lunches, our Tuesday luncheons. I was proud to lead a resolution with Leader McConnell and all other 98 senators commemorating Betty's decades of service and officially designating her, congratulations, Betty, as historian emerita of the United States Senate. Over her time in the Senate, Betty has been a fierce advocate for the preservation of Senate records. Her colleagues describe her as a role model and mentor who's highly knowledgeable, considerate, and persistent. It would be no exaggeration to call Betty Coed's tenure as Senate historian an historic milestone in its own right. Betty Coed, the Senate leaders were talking about you. They were. Why were they talking about you?
1: Because that was the day before I retired from the Senate after 25 years of service.
0: And at the end of your retirement, you put out this book, Scenes People, places and events that shaped the United States Senate. Yes. How long have you been working on this?
1: Well, years and years and years. Uh, I started working on it actively I would say in 2009 because that's when I started to go to the Tuesday caucus luncheons to deliver a brief what we called historical minute which was essentially about a five-minute history talk to senators at their Tuesday luncheons. And my colleagues Dick Baker and Don Ritchie had done it before me, and I took over in 2009. And my colleague Kate Scott has also been doing it in recent years. So we have both both the Democratic and the Republican Party caucuses covered on Tuesdays. So
0: weekly you go to the Senate lunches Mm -hmm. and deliver? Yep. You, and you give the same speech to both Republicans and Democrats? No,
1: we both, we, we, it depends on which caucus you're going to, but we would, both of us, whoever, was Don Ritchie and I did it together for a while, and Kate and I in more recent years, but we'd each write our own little story, and it was a topic of our own choosing. They never asked, they sometimes requested stories. It's, oh, tell us about such and such or so and so, uh, but they never dictated to us what it should be. I began with the Republican caucus in two thousand nine at, at the invitation of Senator McConnell. At that point, the first historian, Dick Baker, had been doing this at the Democratic caucus every week for quite a few years, but the Republicans hadn't caught on to the train yet. And so, Leader McConnell, who's a great lover of history, came and asked me to start doing it for the Republican caucus on their Tuesday luncheons, and I did that and uh, and did it till the almost till the day I left the office and. Uh, over the years produce hundreds of these short stories that are usually, you know, anywhere from 500 to 1000 words long. And they had to be short, they had to be succinct, they had to be to the point, uh, because you only had five minutes to tell the story, but they had to also tell a complete story. And it was a, it was an interesting task and a good challenge and uh, probably one of the best learning experiences I had through the years as Senate historian. So as the years went by they collected up and senators kept coming to me and asking me to produce a book to put them into the book because they wanted to share the stories with other people and that's what resulted in the book we called scenes.
0: What was the interest level from the senators?
1: Uh, very high. They, they, senators as a rule love history some more than others but generally they're they're in an institution that's very tradition-bound, and so they're surrounded by history every day. And it's not unusual as Senate historian to get multiple requests in a day from a senator or a senator's office asking for historical information, asking for background information, asking for reading material. They would often call me and say, I have to fly home on Thursday or Friday and I want to know more about this topic. Can you tell me what to read? and so it was, it was an ongoing sort of educational process to bring history to the senators and help them learn more about their role in this bro- the broader history of the U.S. Senate.
0: Do you remember the topic of your first talk in I 2009?
1: Do, I do, because at that time the Republican caucus, the Republicans were in the minority, so their Tuesday luncheons were in the LBJ room which is the smaller of the two rooms they use. The Mansfield room is the other one. And so the majority caucus always met in the Mansfield room and the minority caucus met in the the LBJ room. So since it was in that room, I began by telling them the history of that room and how it became known as the LBJ room.
0: Do they ever choose the topic?
1: Sometimes they do. They'll come to me and say, You know, uh, John McCain, for instance, came to me multiple times and said, I really want you to do a story about Barry Goldwater. Tell us about Barry Goldwater, because so many people in the Senate today don't remember Barry Goldwater. So it'd be something like that. Or they'd come and say, I'd really like to know about the origins of the filibuster. Can you talk about that? Can you tell us about unanimous consent agreements? Those types of things. So a lot of the ideas, which and honestly, it's a challenge to come up with a new idea every single week of the year. But a lot of the, the ideas came from senators themselves who would come to me or to one of my colleagues and say we'd like to know more about this particular person or this event or this part of the institution that's so important now, but we don't really know why it got to the place it is.
0: So, Betty Coed, what should we all know about Barry Goldwater?
1: <laughs> well, most people think of Barry Goldwater as the 1964 presidential candidate. That's what they remember, when he lost the election to Lyndon Johnson that year. And he be, at the time, he was sort of the father of modern conservatism, and, and uh, he, was, he was portrayed very much as a radical conservative, which he was in many ways. But he was also a very much a statesman kind of person. He was a senator at heart. And after his election, he returned to the Senate and he lived most of the rest of his life as a senator. He died, he died not that long after he left office. But in the Senate, He was a different kind of character than the presidential candidate. He was very down-to-earth. He was much beloved in the Senate and became rather an elder statesman by the 1970s and the 1980s. He was held in very high esteem, but he also had quirky parts of his personality. He was a big champion of ham radio, um, uh, independent amateur radio and everywhere he went he'd take his ham radio set with him he actually built a radio studio in the russell senate office building so that he could go down to that studio and and play on his ham radio and into the wee hours of the morning senator john warner once told me that he would come into uh, committee hearings and for the armed services committee they served together on that committee and Goldwater would come in yawning and sleepy-eyed, and Warner said he knew he'd been up all night talking on ham radio. That's what his real love was. So that, more than anything, is what he's remembered for in the Senate.
0: So Betty Coed, what exactly is the role of the historian besides these weekly lunches that we just talked about?
1: Well, the historian serves as the institutional memory for the Senate and uh, in the senate historical office we really have two principal parts of our mission of our office one is to preserve and promote the history of the senate so to preserve means to preserve all the artifacts all the information all the records that type of thing and to actively work to study and understand the history of the senate to promote the senate so to go one of mike mansfield's uh, Uh, instructions to the first historian when they created the office back in 1975 was to go out into the the nation and let people know what the Senate is and why it's so important and what role it plays in our government. So that's why we do interviews like this, that's why we produce publications, that's why we go to scholarly conferences and book book, um, events and that type of thing to sort of help people understand why the senate is there and why it's so important to our constitutional system of government but also the other part is to make sure we preserve the records of the senate so in the historical office we also have the senate archival team led by karen paul who's been senate archivist for 42 years now 40 almost 43 years now and they are in charge to make sure that Every single record of the Senate, every official record is properly preserved and housed at the National Archives. They also work very closely with each senator to ensure that his or her records are saved at a home state repository. So that's the broad mission of the Office of the Senate, to preserve and promote the history of the Senate. But in addition to that, that mission has grown through the years, so that we have we provide oversight for historical programs that happen on Capitol Hill, including the exhibits in the Capitol Visitor Center, for instance. We have um, a photo historian who oversees a large photo collection that we've collected and compiled over the years and also works with authors and and television producers and and podcast producers and things like that to get images to them when they need it. And we have, a team of historians, we have three historians on staff, three, four, now five archivists on staff, we've been adding staff in recent years, as well as an editor and a a researcher and our photo historian, so we have a really good team in the the Senate Historical Office. And they're all there working collaboratively on projects that really helped fulfill that initial mission. Probably the most visible and important product of all of that is what we have on the Senate website. And we have estimated about 15,000 pages of historical material on senate.gov. And if you go to senate.gov and click on the About the Senate button, that's where you'll find most of the historical material, although it's scattered throughout the site. But that includes institutional material, biographical information about senators, information on parties and how they developed, and party division, You know, just pretty much every topic you can imagine that's related to Senate history. We also are there to help senators with their historical needs. So if they're gonna give a speech and they want to provide some history in it, they'll come to us and ask for information. We'll give special tours to people. We'll do, um, throughout the year, we would do talks and presentations, particularly to senators and staff, but also to the public as well. And all of that, you know, multi-purpose process is all geared towards that initial mission of preserving and promoting the Senate.
0: Well, Betty Cohen, I don't know if it made it easier for you after June 2nd, 1986, but we want to show a little video that you talk about in scenes. Okay. We are going public. We'll be watched by our friends and by people across the country. Today, as the U.S. Senate comes out of the communications dark ages, we create another historic moment
1: in the relationship between Congress and technological advancements in communications through radio and television. As Thomas
0: Jefferson so often reminded us, an educated citizenry is crucial to the preservation of representative government. This has rightly been termed an historic day. Not, Mr. President, that I delude myself that the primitive art form that we practice here on the Senate floor is likely to constitute any great threat to the ratings of Dynasty or Dallas or Falcon Crest. I wish to note that we've had advice on how to do this and uh, how to make certain that we we cut
2: that shine on the head.
0: I imagine that the Capitol Hill area sales of hairspray, styling mousses, Grecian formula, ultra bright toothpaste, and mascara have recently reached an all-time high. (laughs) <laughs> Betty Coe, <Koa>, the
1: TV <laughs> came to
0: the Senate on it that day. It did in
1: 1986. It was a long time coming. Uh, Howard Baker of Tennessee was the man who really worked hard to promote bringing the te- television cameras into the Senate chamber. It took from really the early 1970s until 1986 to make it happen. And uh, Why Senate, was
0: there resistance?
1: Well, the Senate is a very traditional institution and uh, there were lots of concerns about how well it would look on TV. It's, on any given day, the Senate chamber is often empty because things are happening elsewhere. They're not happening in the chamber. But even in the chamber, it it tended to be an institution where people gave sort of, you know, quiet, serious speeches and sometimes very long speeches that didn't necessarily mean good television for 1980s standards and uh, people were concerned that people would be turned off about it or they would just not be interested in what they had to see and what they saw on television. But also there were concerns among members that it would change the culture of the Senate in some way and that people would start to grandstand for the cameras and they'd be talking to the cameras rather than their colleagues or to the people in the galleries. And all of that is true. There's there's an element of truth to that. It has changed the culture of the Senate. Uh, Robert Byrd, you saw there, was the Democratic leader, was very skeptical about bringing television into the Senate chamber. And as Howard Baker was pushing for it, he actually started pushing quite hard. It came in in 1974, very briefly, they were preparing for what might have been an impeachment trial of Richard Nixon. Nixon resigned from the presidency and that didn't happen. They left the cameras in place long enough to to televise the swearing in of Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and then they pulled the cameras out. In the late 1970s, Howard Baker was talking about trying to bring cameras in to film the debate over the Panama Canal Treaties, which were long, tedious, and difficult debates, because those were, that was a difficult process for them to go through. And, but Robert Byrd had, had no interest in that whatsoever. He really thought it would change the culture of a Senate that he loved to its core. But as the years went by and the House adopted C-SPAN coverage in 1979 and the House started to get a lot more attention in the press and in the evening news and had lots of video to provide, then the leaders, including Robert Byrd, began to rethink the process. And uh, Robert Byrd told the story that he was at a West Virginia event and he was mistakenly introduced as the Speaker of the House. And he said at that moment, he knew the Senate had to go on TV because he was losing ground to the Speaker of the House.
0: Well Betty Cohen, in your book, Scenes, <laughs> People, Places and Events that Shape the United States Senate, you quote former Tennessee Senator Howard Baker saying, I think the country will love the Senate. It is populated by some of the choicest characters in the whole political <laughs> spectrum. Well tv was not foreign to the senate especially when it came to hearings mm-hmm. and here's some video from
2: 1951 mm-hmm. uh mr
0: costello did you hear the testimony of uh, mr francis mclaughlin yesterday no, the defense is- mr halley all due respect to the senate which i have an awful lot of respect for i'm not going to answer another question you just says I'm not under arrest and I'm going to walk out. Now, I, sh- I should explain to you exactly what the legal situation is. You are under subpoena, and if, as I assume, the chairman ex- instructs you to remain and answer questions, you will thereby become guilty of contempt of this Senate committee. Uh, just a
1: minute, Mr. Wolfe. Uh, just, just a minute, Mr. Costello. You don't mean that, uh... We'll use every resource in our command to see that he's brought to contempt and that he's arrested by the United States Senate.
0: Frank Costello, the Kefauver hearings. Mm-hmm. Was that Senator Kefauver's idea to bring the cameras in?
1: It was. <clears throat> he did bring that in. It was a controversial choice at the time, and he got a lot of criticism for it. But He, was in he best- got a lot of press for it. He too. got a lot of press for it and he, he was convinced that he was investigating the infiltration of organized crime into local communities and he thought the only way he could really educate the public was to m- bring the, the hearings to television and have them broadcast nationally, which they were almost in full content. And they became a bit of a television sensation. I mean, the the newspaper heading, headlines were screaming things like, you know, this major event has come to television, and it was it was a big success, really. In that way, it didn't do any harm to Estes Kefauver. Uh, his status, national status, rose. He get, became a household name and became a, a contender in presidential elections to come and that kind of thing. But it also showed an important part of the Senate that people prior to that time had very little knowledge of, and that was its investigatory role. And uh, it was a well-handled, well-ordered um, investigation. It had some interesting moments when he brought in crime bosses and, and uh, great figures like Costello from the world of organized crime, and some of them testified, some of them didn't. Um, one of them famously asked not to be shown on television. They only showed his hands fidgeting in the camera and that in itself became a, a television moment as people talked about the fingers of, gang, of, of organized crime. And, uh, but in the end, it showed that television had a role to play in educating the public about the work of the Senate.
0: Betty Coed, are senators allowed to edit Anything that they say on the floor for the official historical record—they
1: are—they every day they produce a congressional record, which is today a near verbatim account of what happened the day before, and uh, and and senators, there's a there's an initial congressional record that goes out very quickly that is a verbatim account, but senators then can go back and look at their comments or their speeches and edit them if necessary. Senators tend not to do that very much anymore. They pretty much let it go out verbatim, uh, in earlier days back in the early 20th century and certainly the 19th century they would edit them quite heavily and sometimes as a researcher you want to try to look at what we call the daily congressional record as well as the formal congressional record because sometimes you'll get much more information in the daily than you will in the formal but today that doesn't happen a lot it still does they still have the ability to do that but the reporters of the debate tell me that you know that's pretty much verbatim at this point
0: back to the book scenes quote on march 8 1943 time featured investigator truman and noted that a democracy has to keep an eye on itself as chairman of what time named one of the most useful government agencies of world war ii truman's bold thorough Senate investigation of defense spending catapulted this one-time farmer and haberdasher turned senator into the national spotlight.
1: Mm -hmm. What was this about? Harry Truman, senator from Missouri, was in his second term in the Senate in 1941. And he proposed a special Senate committee to investigate the national defense program. At the time, we had not yet entered the war. This is pre-Pearl Harbor. But we were starting to gear up for wartime activities, including the Congress had had allocated a huge amount of funds to preparations for war, and defense contracts were being lined up and signed all the time, and Truman became very concerned about how the that public money was being spent. So he proposed a special committee to investigate the National Defense Program. That, that proposal was accepted. They created the committee. They named Harry Truman as chair of the committee, gave him a meager $15,000 budget to start the process, and uh, he started to look into defense contracts and how the money was spent. He traveled all around the country. He visited um, production sites. He visited factories. He talked to people on the streets. And he, asked, interestingly, asked the public to serve as watchdogs and asked the public to send to him examples of waste in government, wasteful government spending and defense issues. And he got thousands and thousands of letters from the public. Some of them led to real investigatory moments. And uh, so it, was, it, it proved to be an incredibly efficient and well-run committee. And the investigation did uncover massive amounts of government waste and spending, and and historians have estimated that he probably saved close to $10 dollars $10 in in uh, government funding through the process of that investigation. It also did no harm to Harry Truman. When he began that process in 1941, he was a relatively unknown figure, just starting his second term in the Senate. He had been. The senator from the Pendergast machine in Missouri. He had a somewhat tainted beginning, and that he had a hard time getting past. But by this time, he was ready to be more independent and stake out his own claim, and that's what he did with this committee. Over the next three years, three and a half years, he led this investigation, which got a lot of public attention. was was widely praised for its effectiveness. So that by 1944, he, is, he had risen to such a status that he became the running mate for President Franklin Roosevelt for his final election bid. He became vice president in 1945, eight, 83 days later became president when FDR died. So it really was what made Harry Truman a national figure and what put him into the position to become president of the United States.
0: Well, Harry Truman was one of 17 senators. Do you know what I'm referring to? No. That became president of the United States. James Monroe, John Quincy Mm -hmm. Adams, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, Franklin Pierce, James Buchanan, Andrew Johnson, Benjamin Harrison, Warren Harding, Harry Truman, JFK, LBJ, Richard Nixon, Barack Obama, and Joe Biden. That's about 35% of the 46 presidents that we've had in the United States served in the Senate.
1: Only two of them. I'm thinking about this through. Be sure. So Lyndon Johnson and Barack Obama went directly from the Senate to the vice presidency.
0: Yeah, uh, In, Barack Obama was never vice president. He went directly. I mean, to the presidency. Into the I'm presidency. Sorry, yeah. That's right. LBJ was vice president That's for right. JFK. JFK went straight That's from right. the Senate. That's
1: JFK and, right. JFK and Barack Obama were the, are two that went directly from the Senate into the presidency. Most of them had some sort of other service in between.
0: And of course several senators, Bob Dole, John Kerry, have all run for president. Yeah. Yeah. It, is it intimidating at times working with a 100 would-be presidents?
1: <laughs> it can be. <laughs> it can be, yes. Um, it can be intimidating working with 100 senators, period, because when you work in the Senate in a position like my position was, for instance, you really have 101 bosses, because we work directly for the secretary of the Senate, who's sort of the chief administrative officer of the Senate. But then we also work for the 100 senators, and so we, we everything we do is sort of is scrutinized by 101 people, essentially, so that can be a little intimidating at times. Um, but there are some who, who are easier to work with than others naturally. Most of them are very appreciative of the work we do, so I'm, I'm happy to say we haven't had many difficult moments through the years.
0: Is there one in history that you always thought, oh, I wish I had worked with him or her?
1: <laughs> oh, there are lots of them. There are many of them. Uh, there's certainly many of them I wish I could have met at some point. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, an amazing person. Difficult, arrogant, eccentric, but absolutely brilliant and so far ahead of his time. Margaret Chase Smith of Maine is one of my personal heroes. Um, when she came into the Senate in 1949, she was the, she was the only female senator. For 15 of her 24 years in the Senate, she was the only female senator, and I just think about what a process that must have been, what an experience that must have been. She seems to have been nearly fearless from everything I can find out about her. Everett Dirksen was such a character, I would love to have met him. Henry Wilson of Massachusetts is another personal hero of mine. He's someone who has been largely forgotten to history, and uh, one one of the purposes behind these stories that we created, that I created for this book, and for the caucuses through the years was to sort of bring to life some of the figures who had been forgotten and Henry Wilson was one of them. He was a major figure of the Civil War era. He was, he was one of the, the leading figures in the civil rights crusades of the 19th century but he's largely lost at this point. So I was able to elevate him back up a little bit and get a little more attention to people like that. So, so there's lots of them I wish I could have met through the years.
0: Back to scenes, people, places, and events that shaped the United States Senate. Quote, one day in 1867, Senator William Stewart of Nevada was startled by a visitor. A very disreputable-looking person slouched into the room, Stewart recalled, dressed in a seedy suit with scraggy black hair, leaking out of a battered old slouch hat and an evil-smelling cigar protruding from the corner of his mouth. He had a very sinister appearance. Who are we talking about?
1: That was a reporter named Samuel Clemens, who of course is better known to us as Mark Twain.
0: And former Senate employee. He
1: was a Senate employee briefly in the 1860s. He actually went into William Stewart's office that day looking for a job. He was, he was not yet a famous author. He was a, he was a promising, rising author at the time. And he was working on a, his first book. And he was looking for a job that would help pay the bills to essentially promote his writing career. Uh, Stewart, despite his sinister appearance, did give him a job, and he became a clerk in in Stewart's office. At that time, that was not unusual because the Senate only met a few months out of the year, and so they often hired reporters and in, in correspondents as clerks for those. It was sort of a mutual beneficial um, experience for both of them. And uh, but he didn't prove to be a particularly good Senate employee. He he did things like franking the senator's signature on personal letters so he didn't have to pay postage on his own personal letters. The, probably the most egregious part of his service was answering constituent mail. And uh, he just, he answered the mail with great plume in, in a Mark Twain style, that is wonderful.
0: And here's that style as quoted from the book. Uh, Mark Twain is responding to a letter about getting a post office in Nevada what the mischief do you want with a post office if any letters come there you couldn't read them no don't bother about a post office once you what you want is a nice jail (laughs) did senator stewart get reelected after having mark twain in his office he went
1: on and he was into the 1870s he becomes an important figure in the passage of the 14th amendment but uh, Twain didn't last long. Uh, he was only in service a few months, and he eventually had, they had to part ways. Interestingly, they, they kind of stayed friends through the years, and they both wrote about the experience at later times in their lives, and, but it wasn't a particularly happy experience for Mark Twain.
0: Well, you mentioned Charles Sumner a little while ago. Here's some video we want to show you.
2: There are a number of interesting things about the caning. One of them is that although there was a lot of violence in Congress, which I write about in this book, deliberate attacks like that are supposed to take place in the street. I mean, violence erupts all the time, particularly in the House, but if you're going to stage an attack in that way, it's supposed to happen in the street, and Brooks, for two days, tries to catch Sumner outside on the Capitol grounds, because that's the, the proper way to beat a congressman. Why? Well, you can see why, because of what happens when he confronts him in the Senate chamber. A Southerner confronting a Northerner, an abolitionist, in the Senate chamber and beating him to the ground, that becomes the South beating the North into submission in a deeply symbolic kind of a way that, you know, has national repercussions in a way that it, it, there would have been repercussions if it happened outside, but the, the symbolism of that, the power of that
1: happening in the Senate takes it off the charts.
0: My guess is you've worked with Joanne Freeman of Yale before. I
1: know Joanne, Yeah, and that's a good description of the caning of Charles Sumner. It was was a a nation-changing event in some ways, I would say. Um, When Preston Brooks who was a South Carolinian came in, I should set the stage a little bit I guess, a couple of days before on May 19th of 1856, Charles Sumner delivered a speech in the Senate chamber that he called the Crime Against Kansas. And in that speech, he denounced the senators and the representatives, but particularly senators who had supported passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act two years earlier. And the reason he denounced them is because the Kansas-Nebraska Act had opened up the possibility for slavery to move into western territories and western states. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts was one of the leading, and in the Senate, the leading abolitionists. Um, hoping to abolish the institution of slavery. He saw passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act as one of the great crimes in our national history. So in May 19th, May 19th of 1856, he comes to the Senate chamber. Over the course of two days, he delivers a speech that lasts for about five or six hours. And it's a really radical speech for the time. It's very strong in its language. It has lots of sexual innuendo in it. Um, he, he declares, slavery as the harlot slavery, and, and, and uh, accuses Andrew Butler of South Carolina of somehow cohorting with this slavery, this harlot slavery. And it was such a shocking speech to the ears of the Senate that even people who had supported Charles Sumner um, found it to be just beyond the pale. And and interestingly, one of the people he targeted in the speech was Stephen Douglas of Illinois, who had been one of the principal architects of the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And Douglas came in while he was giving the speech, heard the speech, and at the end of the speech he said, one day that fool's going to get himself killed by some other fool. After the speech, Sumner's friends, including Henry Wilson, who I've mentioned, uh, offered to escort him home because they feared for his safety, and Sumner, said, no, I'll be fine, and passed that off. A couple days later, on May 22nd, Sumner was sitting at his desk in the Senate chamber, uh, signing his frank, signing his signature to copies of the speech to mail out to people. When Preston Brooks, who was a relative of Andrew Butler's, came into the Senate chamber, as Joanne talks about that, and, and comes up to Sumner, raises his heavy cane, and says something like, Sumner, I find your speech a libel against my kin and my state, and down came the cane. Over the course of about a minute, he inflicted about 40 wounds on the head and shoulders of Sumner left Sumner unconscious and bleeding on the floor. And uh, it was, as Joanne says, a, a really uh, important moment because it really showed two major things. One, that the violence of the world and the violence of the issue of slavery was now visited in the Senate chamber itself. And secondly, that all the legislative compromises and all the legislative efforts to somehow settle the issue of slavery and avoid disunion were breaking down and it would take more than that to somehow save the Union and end the institution of slavery. Sumner left the Senate to recover and his desk was draped in black and it itself became a symbol of the abolitionist cause. Now I should say Sumner did he left the Senate. he was away for most of the next three years recovering from his injuries, but he did come back to the Senate. He came back in 1859, and in, in fact, the most important part of his Senate career came after he returned. From 1860 to 1874, when he died in office, he not only did he continue the cause of abolition, but he became the principal architect of the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which in essence, put in place the language for what became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So, Betty
0: Coed, you have a PhD from UC Santa Barbara, Mm -hmm. an undergrad degree from there Mm -hmm. as well, Colorado, Mason City, Iowa, Mm -hmm. all in your past. Did you know that story when you were attending UC Santa Barbara or did you learn that in the Senate?
1: Actually, I did not know that story. I think I had heard it somewhere along the line in high school history class or something like that. But when I came to the Senate, I knew nothing of the caning of Charles Sumner. I knew who Charles Sumner was, because I had read about him in graduate school. But I was mostly a 20th century historian in graduate school, so didn't give a lot of attention to 19th century. And there's so many things about the Senate that I knew nothing about. I sometimes knew the name, I vaguely heard, heard something about the event, but had not studied them in any detail. So. Sometimes as a Senate historian, and you, I'll give you a good example of this, when I delivered a story in the Republican caucus about this caning of Charles Sumner story, I went into that luncheon in that day thinking most of these people in here will know this story because they work in and around the Capitol and it's told all the time on tours and anytime who, someone visits the old Senate chamber they'll hear this story. So I told the story and I took the story right up to the moment when Preston Brooks walks into the chamber and approaches Charles Sumner and at that point I, I left the story because my five minutes was up and I said, and you know the rest of the story. And I started to leave and as I left I heard one senator say to another, did he hit him? <laughs> and I realized at that point even they didn't necessarily know the story. And so the next week I came back and told the rest of the story. But it's it you can't take it for granted that people are going to hear Senate history in schools. They'll get a little bit of Congress in schools, but they get very little about the Senate. So everything we approach as Senate historians, we approach with the 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 expectation That we're going to have to set the context before we tell the rest of the story.
0: You became Senate historian in 2015 but you joined the Senate office in 1998. Mm -hmm. Did both Senators Trent Lott and Tom Daschle as the leaders at that time have to sign off on your hiring?
1: No. Uh it's up to the Secretary of the Senate to hire. Now they do inform the leadership and uh I don't think there's any sort of formal sign-off, but they will go to leadership and say this is the person we've hired. Now when you become Senate historian, they do that in consultation with the with the leadership. But as the assistant historian, sort of the apprentice coming in, it doesn't quite get to that level. It goes to the Secretary of the Senate level. But when they decided to appoint me a Senate historian in twenty fifteen Um, At that point, the Secretary of the Senate will consult with both leaders and say, we'd like to promote this person to Senate historian and be sure that they're on board. Who were the leaders in 2015? 2015, we would have had, uh, would have been Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid.
0: 1998, quite a momentous year in the Senate.
1: It was. In fact, I joined the Senate in June of 1998. And my colleagues, Dick and Dick Baker and Don Ritchie said to me, "You know, it's going to be a nice, quiet year because it's an election year, and so you'll have lots of time to settle in and read and get used to your new position." And I had been there just a few months when the House decided to impeach President Bill Clinton. And then it was it was just chaos. It was crazy time. It's probably the busiest our office has ever been. And all three of us just spent all day on telephone, answering calls, answering questions from reporters, providing background information, studying impeachment. Um, Fortunately, when I came in June, coincidentally, Dick Baker had had in mind that he'd like to put more information on our website about Senate impeachment trials. And so he assigned me the uh, the task of studying Senate impeachment trials as one of my first jobs. And, uh, and I also was the person who was populating the website at that time, which was brand new. And so I, by that time, I had spent the last three, four months deeply in, in the study of Senate impeachment history. So that helped out a lot. But it was, uh, it was a tumultuous time for us as well as the nation.
0: Betty Cohen, because of the nature of the Senate trial, did you work closely with the House historian and the Supreme Court historian?
1: Yes, less the Supreme Court historian, although we, the, the, there's not a Supreme Court historian per se, but they have an historical society there, and we worked with them. We did work with the staff of the Chief Justice because he was presiding over the trial, particularly Dick Baker did, less more so than I did at that point. We worked a lot with the House historians, and uh, at the, that time the House histories office was going through its own transition as well, And uh, but they had uh, some new people coming in and uh, who were doing the House side of it. But yes, all, on all these sort of projects, impeachment trials, anything that involves State of the Union addresses, anything that involves both houses of Congress, we work very carefully with the House History Office.
0: Well, Betty Cohen has been a friend of C-SPAN over the years, and it was in t- 2019 that she helped us with this. I've been asked several times today, will I, will I agree to this, uh, this version or that version of the Senators Oklahoma Amendment? No! Thomas Jefferson questioned the need for a Senate.
1: ...of this country,
0: the founders envisioned... ...the framers
1: believed that... Let's follow the Constitution.
0: Sometimes it seems that nothing is happening on the Senate floor. The action is going on elsewhere. We do attack... Regular order! ...in committee rooms... Regular order! ...and over... ...in senators' offices... <laughs> ...in the offices of the Senate leaders. But that's all preliminary. Sooner or later... Everything has to come here. Here is where the final say, the final act, takes place. Here is where the law is made. And once again, thank you for that help on that. How much effort was was it to get our cameras into where we got our cameras?
1: We had to get a resolution passed to allow that to happen. So the Senate chamber, other than the usual as you know, the usual C-SPAN cameras are there at certain angles and certain spaces. Uh, to get but any... Senate cameras. We Senate cameras with a C-SPAN feed, right. that's exactly right. In order to get any additional angles or any sort of additional coverage, you have to get a resolution passed in the Senate to do that. So it was quite a process.
0: And that entire documentary is available on our website, cspan.org. Just click on the other series page.
1: That was a fun project.
0: That, that was yeah. a lot of work, a lot yeah. of late nights, so yeah. we appreciate that. But back to your book and your project, Scenes, People, Places, and Events That Shaped the United States Senate, I want to ask about two people who I think have been forgotten by history, Rebecca Felton and Gladys Pyle.
1: Oh, yes, early female senators, yeah. Rebecca Felton was the first female senator. In 1922, she was appointed to fill a vacant seat in the Senate, and with that she became the first sen- first woman to serve in the Senate. From 1789 to 1922, that's a long time to go to get a female senator. And she really came into office kind of a, as a fluke in some ways, it, you know, it was a case where um, there was a vacancy in the office and the, the um, governor of her state hoped to f- actually gain election to that seat himself. He had just recently lost his own reelection bid for governor. And he thought that the best way he could assure his election was to assuage the women senators of his state to help him get it that spot. Uh, the women's suffrage amendment had just been passed a couple of years before that. He had vehemently opposed the, su- the women's suffrage amendment. He had alienated a lot of women in his state. So he thought if he could gain those women's votes, he'd have a good chance of winning the election. So really with that goal in mind, he appointed Rebecca Felton, who was at the time 87 years old, um, to serve as a placeholder to hold that seat until hopefully he could take that seat himself. It didn't work out that way. He, he lost the election to Walter George, who, went, who took office in 1922 and went on to serve a long Senate term. But Walter George did step aside long enough to allow Rebecca Felton to be sworn into office in November of nineteen twenty two and she served just another twenty four hours after that, gave a single speech in the Senate. So it was a it was a short lived milestone. But the but first woman it Senator It was the first woman senator and it broke a barrier that had been in place in 1789. Now Gladys Pyle is an interesting case. Now Rebecca Selton was Rebecca Felton was a Democrat from from Georgia. Gladys Pyle was the first Republican woman to serve in the Senate. And she never really got much of a chance to serve either, because it was a matter of circumstances at that point. This was 1938, and it's all tied up with the 1938 midterm election. At that time, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was in his second term as president, they were expecting to lose a number of democratic seats in the 1938 election. And he was hoping to get some a few pieces of legislation passed through in that post-election lame duck session while he still had as many Democratic seats as he could keep in that spot. So even though the the Senate had adjourned for the year, wasn't expected to come back till January, which was common practice at that time, he was hoping that he would call Congress back into session for a lame duck session and get take advantage of what the Democratic majority that he had at the time. Gladys Pyle was there because there was a vacant seat. The uh, uh, South Dakota senator had died in office and there was a vacant seat that was gonna be empty when the election came from November until January. And the Republicans wanted to be sure they had as many seats as possible so they could oppose Franklin Roosevelt in those legislative efforts. And so they turned to Gladys Pyle, who was a well-known figure in South Dakota. She had been in the state legislature, had been Secretary of State, and was a pioneering woman in politics at that time. And so they brought her in to fill that November to January time period there, um, just to hold the seat in case they needed her vote. And it turned out they didn't need her vote because Roosevelt did not call them back into session, and they were out of session the whole time. Nonetheless, and this is part of the Senate of that era that this doesn't happen much anymore. She did come to Washington. She, she took the oath, not in open session, but just an oath given by a judge or some other official that allowed her to do some Senate business. And she went on and, and, and served as senator for about six, seven weeks during November and December of that year. Uh, today, that doesn't happen very often because partly the Senate is partly due to the fact that the Senate's in all year round now. We don't have a lot of long periods of adjournment like we used to have, and uh, the senators get sworn in an open session very quickly now, so they don't have to do that. But in those days, they'd often get sworn in right after an appointment in their home state, so that they could start business as quickly as possible. So Gladys Pyle is a is a path breaker of her own uh, path um, breaker of her own right. She was not only in South Dakota politics, but in the in the U.S. Senate as well as the first Republican senator.
0: And for me, learning about these two women, they were accomplished in their own rights yes. before they even came to the Senate.
1: Absolutely. But Rebecca Felton was known as the grand old lady of politics in Georgia, um, partly because her husband had served in the House of Representatives, and she essentially ran his office. But she had been very active in the women's suffrage movement, so she was very well known and uh, had also, unfortunately, had also been very active in anti-civil rights efforts, and, is, and that's the darker side of her story, um, but well-known in Georgia. Same way with Gladys Pyle, as I mentioned, she'd been in state government, she'd served as secretary of state. She actually ran for governor and won the popular vote, but it, she didn't have the necessary majority, so it went to a convention, and the all-male convention gave the, uh, the seat to one of her male competitors, which must have been a bit infuriating, I would think. But she came into it a well-known figure in her state.
0: From the book, on a quiet Saturday morning in June of 1954, Wyoming Senator Lester Hunt entered the Senate office building, exchanged pleasantries with a Capitol police officer, and then proceeded to his third floor office. Just minutes later, the police officer heard a shot. In the 1950s, there were many victims of Senator Joseph McCarthy's Baseless charges. One of them was Lester Hunt.
1: Mm-hmm. That is a sad story. That's a tragic moment in Senate history. Lester Hunt had been a popular senator, um, a popular Democratic senator from the state of Wyoming, and which was in itself a bit of a feat because Wyoming was mostly a Republican state at that point. At that point, it still is today. But unfortunately, Lester Hunt and his family became targets of McCarthy. And we often think of McCarthyism as the anti-communist crusade. But there was another side of McCarthyism, and that was the persecution of gays and lesbians in in the US. And Lester Hunt's son was homosexual. And he had been arrested in, in a park in Washington DC for soliciting an undercover officer and was left off, let out, it was the first offense and and, uh, they sent him home to his family and Lester Hunt hoped that the incident would just not gain publicity. But Lester Hunt had been a vocal outspoken critic of Joe McCarthy in the early 1950s and uh, by 1954 McCarthy was looking for any reason he could find to help push Lester Hunt out of office. And this incident with his son became the tool they used to make that happen. So they began, McCarthy and his allies in the Senate began to put a lot of pressure on Lester Hunt to resign from office, and thereby hopefully open up his seat for someone who would be more pro-McCarthy. And Lester Hunt refused to do so. But as time went by, the burden of carrying the secret of his son's problem, along with the persecution by McCarthy and his allies, that burden just grew and grew until the fateful day in 1954 when he committed suicide in the Russell Senate office building.
0: Betty Cohen, do you know where that space is that he committed suicide and, and what's it used for today?
1: It's part it's in a member's office it's a it's you know the offices have changed a lot through the years in the Russell building they've shifted around and be, been reconfigured but it was a, it was a room in Lester Hunt's two-room personal office at that time, as the design was, and now it's just part of a larger suite. It's on the third floor of the Russell Building.
0: And you also write in the scenes about the Senate hideaways. Mm-hmm. What's a hideaway?
1: A hideaway is a private office in the Capitol building that a senator can use as sort of an escape from the, the tumult and the chaos of the Capitol. In the Capitol in the rather the
0: Capitol. than the Senate office building.
1: Yes. Yes, the the tradition of hideaways go back to the 19th century. Some of the earliest senators were able to um, find a little room somewhere that they sort of took over and made their own and created their own personal office. Really, until the Russell Building opened in 1909, senators did not have personal offices. The only space they had was their desk in the Senate chamber. That was their office. And uh, they, so consequently, they looked for any space they could. And, uh, at one point in the 1890s, the Senate was rent, renting a big uh, apartment building nearby to provide extra office space for senators. So that was space was at a, it was at a premium at the time. And they began to give committee spaces to each senator who chaired a committee. And through the years, the number of committees grew and grew and grew, until you get to the 1920s, we had something like 70 committees, so almost every senator could have an office. Uh, Most of the committees were just sinecure committees, they called them, that had no purpose other than to provide an office to the chair. When the Russell Building opened up in 1909, then senators finally got a personal office, and that opened up a lot of spaces in the Capitol. And a lot of those spaces were turned into what we call hideaway spaces, hideaway offices. And so it's where a senator, and it goes by seniority, so the most senior senator would get the best one all the way down, and uh, they would have a space somewhere in the capitol building as close to the senate chamber as they could get it where they could do some work, they could have quiet work there, they could meet with staff, they could meet with constituents, whatever the case may be. Through the years, the number of hideaways grew as opportunities arose. When the Dirksen Building opened, when the Hart Building opened, a lot of staff that were working in the Capitol got shifted into the office buildings and that opened up space. Finally, when the Capitol Visitor Center opened in 2009, enough staff got shifted to that space that all 100 senators were able to have hideaway spaces. Now some of them, for very senior members, have beautiful hideaway spaces up there with a grand view of the the National Mall and the Washington Monument. The more junior senators tend to have a small little room in the basement, often with no windows at all.
0: A real hideaway.
1: Yeah, I've been in a few of the hideaway spaces in the basement that looked like they were just closets or broom closets or something like that that they don't spend much time in, but that's one of the things they hope to get as they gain seniority. So
0: Senate Pro Tem Patty Murray should Mm -hmm. have the grandest space, correct? She'll
1: have a wonderful hideaway space, yeah, yeah. Well, from your
0: book, quote, When it comes to capital land grabbing, no one will ever surpass Lyndon Johnson. As majority leader, Johnson occupied several hideaways, along with a grand leadership suite. He had so many rooms, in fact, that they collectively became known as the Johnson East Ranch.
1: Yeah, Lyndon Johnson was the master of real estate on Capitol Hill. And he just, particularly when he became majority leader in the late 1950s, he just, he just gained every space he could get. So he had his personal office, he had his leadership office, he had his hideaway office, and then he just it just kept growing and growing. In fact, to the point where, as majority leader, he gained what we now call the Lyndon Johnson Room on the second floor, it's one of the prettiest rooms in the Capitol. And he took that space over and, and that became his leadership office, but he didn't relinquish any of the other space. And then when he became vice president in 1961, he, he also got the vice president's office in the Capitol, but he didn't relinquish the LBJ room. So with each, with each step he moved up the leadership ladder, he just gained more and more space. He finally had to give some of it up when he, when he got to be president.
0: Betty Coed, what is your job as Senate Emerita now, Senate Historian Emerita?
1: <laughs> well, I'm here to consult whenever necessary, so if something comes up in the office and and uh, my succeed, successors have questions, I'm there. If the Senate has- Who succeeded you? Uh-huh. Uh, Catherine Scott, Kate Scott, is the new Senate historian. She joined the office in 2010 after Dick Baker retired, and uh, she's- a wonderful historian and a very skilled uh, speaker, so she's, she's taken over all of these tasks that I did of pre- doing presentations and that type of stuff. And uh, But I'm, there, I'm here as a consultant if they need me. I suspect she won't need me very often because she's very good at her job and she has a very uh, wonderful assistant coll- a colleague, the uh, associate historian, Daniel Holt and they're in the process of looking for a new assistant historian now so they'll have three in in place again soon. Um, If the Senate has events or they want to have something where they bring me back to talk then I'm here available for that. Um, So it's more just sort of um, as an advisory consultant role at this point as needed.
0: So in your semi-retirement what are you doing?
1: Well I'm spending time doing a lot of things i didn't get enough time to do over the last quarter century um including i'm a drummer so i spend a lot of time drumming and uh, i'm in a drum group and that's a lot of fun and we enjoy that a lot and uh, i do martial arts so i get to spend time doing that and um you know doing some other writing, other writing projects. I've put history off. I've, I've banned history from the house for six months, so <laughs> I can't read any history or write any history for at least six months, um, just to give myself a break. But I'm doing Have some you been faithful revision. to that so far? I have so far, yeah. So to do other types of writing I'm doing, and traveling and visiting my family, and doing things I just have sort of lost track of over the years.
0: And of course, in her last months, As Senate historians, Betty Coed worked on this book, scenes, people, places, and events that shaped the United States Senate. And we appreciate your spending an hour with us here on C-SPAN.
1: Thank you, Peter. Happy to be here.
2: All Q&A programs are available on our website, or as a podcast on our C-SPAN Now app.